You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And this is Miranda. And I want to actually start with something completely off topic with what we're going to be talking about today. If I just take a minute. I have I have no intention of ever making this a political podcast. I have not really espoused my opinion on here, although not directly anyway. Uh, we've had people as guests on the show who are on the sort of conservative end of the spectrum, the liberal end of the spectrum, libertarians, nonpartisan. That's not just that's just not part of what we do. And so I want to just talk about a quick thing in the news and have it not be about politics, just be about people. Over the weekend, um, I think it was Thursday or Friday, John McCain had announced that he was going to stop medical treatment, or at least that was reported in the news, and then just a few days later, um, passed away on Saturday. And I just, I was struck um, at how quickly that happened. And I I imagine that probably it was, you know, he kind of knew and so had made the decision to stop treatment and that's why that news came on the heel one after the other anyway i just wanted to say that i my heart goes out to his family and to his friends and it was a sad thing that uh he seemed like a really good guy obviously never met him because he's like you know the famous politician um but you know i just wanted to say that i think that in the time where i think we probably hear a lot of uh, hate and fear in the news and, and social media and stuff that I would just send that out as a sort of positive thing that not that it's good that he died, but that I, you know, my heart goes out to his family and just to, that we, we recognize and celebrate the life of someone who seemed like a generally pretty good person. So that's, that's just all I wanted to say. I echo that sentiment for sure. Sweet. And you know, we could bring up, if we're going to talk about that stuff, the news about the, the Florida thing and um, with the shooting and that also super sucks and you know, heart goes out to those people as well that um, it we are, of course, in turbulent times. And that will basically that statement is essentially always going to be true. Um, and that doesn't make it OK. That's just acknowledging that sometimes things really suck. And that kind of seems to be where we're at right now. But again, that's a statement that's always true. So I don't know. That's not really profound. I just, you know, I just wanted to try and send some positive notes out there amid the uh, the things that are often said in social media and in the news that are uh, very, I guess, negative. So, okay, that's all I have. You want to comment on any of that? I mean, yeah, I just, as a podcast that generally doesn't comment on those types of things, we try and keep things um, based on our topics. But when it comes down to it, you know, we are interested in a very specific subject matter, and that is why we do what we do. And It's true. You know, a lot of why we do what we do uh, is influenced by the realm of culture and and media and the things that are happening. So I don't by any means think that it's irrelevant for us to comment. And I think in this case, uh, sharing those sentiments is is appropriate. And okay, you know, we are we are we're human beings and we're in the world too. And and I I don't want people to think that we're recording this podcast in a vacuum <laughs> by any means. So accurate. We're affected by those things around us. Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks. And for those, I guess I, I should have thought about for the people who listen to this, who are not in this country, who maybe have never heard of John McCain. Um, he was a, a, a politician, we'll just say in the United States. Um, he ran for president in the 2008 election. So eight years ago. Um, and I be- well, I just, we'll leave it at that, that he, um, 
he, he well, I mean, he was not president. Uh, he didn't win that election, but he seemed like the guy who was uh, was generally a good guy. So just for those people, who, I guess, who aren't familiar with that name, a little bit of background. Okay, let's uh, let's get into our topic. So let's begin by doing a quick exercise. Specifically, if you're in a place that's safe to do so, that is, you're not driving, or you have your attention focused on something where you need your safety is is critical. Maybe even don't listen to a podcast in that particular instance, but you know, you do you just, if it's safe, uh, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and focus your attention on your breathing in and out. I could say this in the really slow meditative voice that helps you really get into the mood of things. It's painful for me to talk this slow. Okay. Sorry. I'm getting off track. So (laughs) you're focusing your attention on your breathing. And really while you're doing this, notice that your mind is going to continue running and it's going to do a lot of thoughts that are kind of at various levels. You're you're probably going to have the more obvious, I'm listening to what's being said. Like that's the thing that's most present probably. And then a little more subtle than that, how much longer is this episode going to be? Or how long is this going to go on for? And probably it's somewhere in the back of your mind. This might even be the most prevalent thing. You might be thinking, what, what, do, what do I have to do today? What's happening after this? Where am I going? You might be thinking about money or something that's stressing you out or something you're looking forward to. The order is not really important. Just notice that those are things that you're, you're thinking. And so really, regardless of what those thoughts are, I, you, maybe you were thinking none of those things, just notice the experience you have with your eyes closed and focusing on your breath, just, just to get your attention to something specific. Um, I, I mean, I could say that even if you're driving, you can look around, really notice all the other cars around you, be really safe, look at your speed, pay attention to the signs, know where you're at, basically pay really good attention to the road. That was just a PSA for people who are driving that to not try and take your attention off the road. Um, the point is that if you're in that safe place, reflect on the experience you have of the context you're in and your surroundings. Notice something around you that you didn't notice before. Listen to sounds around you that you may have missed or certain smells or textures or what it feels like the way your clothes are hanging on your body. Just take a second. I'm going to pause for just a moment and just try and notice those things again, if you're in a safe place to do that. Okay. So we can get back on track with the topic there is a point that I did this weird, silly exercise thing, um, that maybe some people thought, well, that was dumb and I wish you hadn't wasted my time with that. And I apologize. And maybe some people are like, that was kind of nice. That was relaxing. Maybe your fault, maybe you're asleep now. And if so, sweet dreams. Um, that's okay too. (laughs) I guess moving on, you know, actually, Marin, I'm going to ask you directly. Have you ever wondered if when you're looking at a color, if everyone sees the same color that you see? You know what I mean? Like maybe they see something that's actually completely different from what you're seeing, but they've learned to call it by the same name as you. You know what I'm saying? That might have been like my first philosophical thought as like, you know, a 10 year old or something. I think right. it's it's pretty. Yeah, it's a it's a um, pretty ubiquitous uh, thought experiment. Great. Yeah. Um, so I'm at the level of a 10 year old right now. And <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. But the whole question of the the way that we experience the world around us. Okay. So I wasn't trying to hypnotize you during that. I wasn't trying to do honestly, 
Um, and I'm not even saying that we subscribe to anything that's inside of that, whether we do or, or don't is irrelevant because that's not what we're talking about today. So what was happening is I was really, the intention of that exercise was to examine your subjective experience of the world and the fact that it is subjective and unique to you in at least some capacity. And with that intention in mind, maybe I could have led with that. If you want to go back and listen to that first part, go for it. And so what we're talking about today is something called phenomenology and a bit about sort of the, the philosophy of phenomenalism. So let's dive into this. What's the most important yeah. question to begin with? What is that? What is phenomenology? Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> so phenomenology is, it's kind of a gray area sort of thing where it doesn't have a super clear definition. It is, well, you'll find various definitions essentially is what I'm saying. It is the psychological study of subjective experience and how we sort of perceive it, the way we experience it and, and have that, what that's like. Okay. That's essentially what phenomenology is, right? And it's not particularly like a sort of field of study or, you know, like a particular method or philosophy per se, but it's mostly described as kind of a method of inquiry inside of philosophy. Right. And so let's, before we dig into too much of what phenomenology is, let's go into a quick timeline of the history of how this sort of developed, because it'll be tempting to try and intersperse it otherwise. And let's just cover sort of our bases. So th throughout all of history, there were many philosophers that proposed a lot of different ideas. Um, and all of these ideas kind of shaped what was eventually to become described as phenomenology. You can kind of linked us all the way back to uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, right? Um, yeah. In which, you know, he describes human perception of reality as only a reflection upon which we have this subjective experience, but it's never really actually direct reality itself. Right. The idea that reality is out there and we're sort of interpreting reality the best that we can through our senses, but it's only sort of a shadow of that reality. And the term was actually introduced by Johann Heinrich Lambert in the 1700s, and uh, was later used by several other influential philosophers and um, thinkers and philosophical thinkers and whatnot, um, including such notable individuals as Immanuel Kant and GWF Hegel. And from these foundations, uh, German philosophers, all right, this is, this is German, so I'm gonna do my best, of uh, Fr uh, Franz Bentano, sounds Italian to me, and Karl Stumpf. Uh, that's German. That's definitely German. Uh, <laughs> developed a philosophy of what they described as this intentionality of consciousness. And th they were really doing this work in sort of the 1800s. Yeah, and the name was formally developed and specifically titled in like the early 1900s um, in the philosophical work of one of their students. So this student was Edmund Husserl. Right. And interesting fun fact, uh, the very famous, possibly most famous of all psychologists, Sigmund Freud, um, was also a student of Bentano um, and from from his work and so obviously freud went on to do uh, many other things after after he studied with him so fun facts yes <laughs> so when phenomenology actually emerged as like a philosophical enterprise at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century there were not really systematic social and behavioral sciences right they were being developed but they really lacked like a strong sort of cohesion especially when it came to theory right so at best at that point you had the, there were sort of currents of thought um, that were happening around these developing philosophies and theories and worldviews, but they were they really weren't established disciplines. 
that much. I mean, they were becoming established. They were sort of building up to that level, but you didn't have a lot of the principles and and descri- and descriptions of the underlying components of those um, much more cohesive theories. Uh, those were just sort of happening, and and much later. After significant modifications and paradigm shifts, these were categorized as those social and behavioral sciences. So historically, you might be someone who does phenomenology, such as, you know, if you're a philosopher or human scientist, and and that's a much more appropriate characteristic than describing someone as actually being a phenomenologist. So it's been said, you know, that phenomenology is, you know, kind of more of a movement rather than school. Yeah, I mean, the the amount of uh, variety has been much greater than there being sort of a unified version of phenomenology. It doesn't really, there, there was never a core sort of thing. It, as you said, it was sort of a way of doing, of, of approaching a particular science or discipline. And also in the sciences with which phen- phenomenology became related, there has been a lot of that variability. In early psychology, for example, um, associationism and elementism, which I'm not going to go into right now, um, they had so little in common with uh, gestalt or gestalt, I've heard it both ways, <laughs> uh, psychology, which in turn was so different from behaviorism or modern cognitivism that for each of them, the relationship with phenomenology uh, had to be sort of carefully defined uh, from both ends. Everybody sort of had to find their place with respect to this idea of that subjective experience. That's, that's kind of a lot to unpack, but that's that's trying to shape this really enigmatic, structuralist idea that, again, it was more of a way of approaching a subject than it was an actual discipline or anything. I think it's interesting, you know, we can actually link this, some modern psychological theory uh, that kind of uses the idea of phenomenology as uh, Brentano outlined when we look at something called theory of mind, which is actually a branch of analytic thought inspired by phenomenology and is something that some of our listeners might be familiar with. Yeah, all of these things you can see with a really broad historical lens how this sort of shaped over time to become what it has turned into and how it has been sort of also diverted into other things like theory of mind is a great example pulling from essentially that trajectory starting all the way at Bentano and ending up at the you know the where the current research and theory of mind is that pulls also more from what became described in phenomenology as well so it, yeah, it's kind of interesting just to see how those things developed over time and so okay all of this might be a little bit confusing this is a lot of weird ambiguous things we're talking about so i'm going to try let, let's go ahead and try and get some more approachable examples right so let's take something that is fairly trivial is thinking about a phenomenological description of eating ice cream. Now, from that perspective, this phenomenology perspective, it would not be describing eating ice cream would not include like a list of ingredients. It wouldn't include information about fat and calories, and it would not include the likely impact on one's sort of weight and waistline. Instead, that description from a uh, phenomenological perspective would include details about the flavor, the temperature, the texture, potentially the color and its relative appeal. And again, this is getting at that subjective experience because you can more objectively describe some of those things, the ingredients and the calories and that sort of thing. But how what it feels like to eat ice cream is in this category over here in the phenomenology end of things, right? And so you don't concern yourself with what appears, what can be concretely observed, but rather instead with the way things 
are experienced, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, um, there's one phenomenologist who who said, quote, when I look at a circular coin tilted away, I see something elliptical. So another phenomenologist might posit, you know, a circular coin seen tilted don't look elliptical. Rather, they look like circular tilted coins. Fair. Perhaps. Right. <laughs> so such a dispute, even if it rises to the level of like a genuine dispute, does not actually it absolutely cannot engage with matters beyond its basic terms it's completely free of questions about the natural world right it's all about the perspective so even if there was this um, pure uh, phenomenology um, perspective that lacked any like legitimate scientific support it's likely that many philosophers and scientists would actually endorse at least in a way, some of the phenomenology, a sort of a weaker version of it, the methodological variant of the doctrine of pure phenomenology. That is, there's a lot of big words in there, that scientists might use the productive or um, the, find the ways in which this might be pragmatic and useful for their research and their theory and that sort of thing, if that makes sense. So according to this kind of um, more objective view, phenomenology really just becomes kind of a descriptive preliminary to theorizing about the nature of consciousness, right? So right. if you think about it, you know, in fact, most descriptions that we find that specifically label phenomenalism as description, um, it, it's description rather than prescriptive. That is, it is merely a way of talking about things. Uh, it doesn't actually give any recommendations or actions or any sort of experimentation. Right. And so phenomenology with this sort of more objective, what you might consider weaker conception, in the, at least weaker in the sense that it doesn't embrace the full, say there's not really a view of phenomenology. It, it, it relies on that objective angle. Um, you might compare this to something like a crime scene description. So for example, a detective needs carefully to describe the scene of a crime uh, before he or she can begin to theorize about what actually happened. The detective works back from the evidence at the crime scene uh, back to where things were originally. And in the same way, according to the methodological variant, this sort of utilitarian way of approaching pure pheno uh, phenomenology, you need to gather that subjective experiential information. So gather data on what that individual experience is like before you try and then uncover the physical or causal I guess reality of that event or that thing you're trying to study. So essentially what's being proposed here is that yes, people have the, you can have these objective measurements, you can have um, pure concrete sort of things, but first you need to sort of survey and categorize what the subjective interpretation is. And once you have that sort of aggregated and described, then you can move on to what the more, um, I guess, concrete objective elements are. But it is important to remember that when it comes to phenomenology, that it's not really an autonomous domain of inquiry. So experience does depend whether, you know, you're talking causally or metaphysically or whatever on the brain and the physical world. So it might also be useful to point out that plenty of research has shown how easily our interpretation of events can be tricked or misled. So for example, 
you might miss a word that was being spoken to you, but you perceive that you actually heard some or all of that word if you have enough of the context. Say, for example, you're in a crowded place, it's really loud, and you couldn't quite hear everything that was said, but you were able to gather enough of it that you understood what was being said, such that there might be words that you completely didn't hear, maybe even words that weren't spoken, that you will perceive as having heard those words. And so the same idea is shown in um, in this effect where you have ambiguous sounds in a word in which part of the word is obscured, but given the context of the word and having the rest of the word, you will actually hear the intended sound that was deliberately obscured, even though it is technically ambiguous. And if you heard it on your own, you couldn't say what that sound was. And this has been shown experimentally. Uh, many people talk about this as in a way the brain sort of filling in the gaps and interpreting stimuli. And this is accurate, but I always am a little bit concerned. It makes it sound like your brain is this sort of separate entity that just sort of does things without you and without your experiences. And so I like to frame this a little bit more contextually in that your experiences shape the way that your brain works to perceive things so that when you encounter those ambiguous and sort of decontextualized sounds, you're able to navigate them relatively easily and seamlessly. And again, yes, you need your brain to do this and your brain does, it does do this sort of fill in the gap sort of thing, but it does that because it's been shaped to do that through experience and through use and through having the, the, the contextual framework to be able to do those things. So it's not like your brain is just this thing that does things all on its own. It is having that experience. If you were to hear those sounds in a language you didn't speak natively, you would hear that ambiguous stimuli and you wouldn't know what it was because you have no context, right? And so having already not knowing what's being said, you would simply hear the sounds as they were presented rather than the sounds as you would interpret them. And it's that experience that gives you the a way of navigating, even though you're not intentionally thinking about it and like going through this sort of troubleshooting thing in your mind, if you will, about what did I just hear? Is that probably what they said here? Instead, it happens pretty automatically because you're so, so fluent at participating in that context and with those words in that order a lot of the time that you're able to interact with it as if it were a thing that, that actually happened, even though it might not necessarily have. And so you can call that the brain filling in the gaps. Again, that's, that's accurate. I just, I always want to, I, I hesitate from putting so much responsibility on the role of the brain because it is something that is shaped through experience. Absolutely. And I think, you know, all of this is to say that phenomenology accurately points out that not even our most objective scrutiny is sensitive to subjective experiences, right? So right. it's not to say that anything you can imagine is legitimate as objective observation. And of course, you know, we know as scientists that science is the collective effort of people to overcome the very effects of our subjective history and, and our experiential history on our ability to objectively scrutinize observable events. Right. I always feel like we have to be careful when we talk about things like phenomenology and subjective experience and the fact that we are doing a lot of just interpreting things to that that opens the door for people who are like, well, if I think that the earth is flat, then that's just as legitimate as all of the data that show that it's not. And the point is that we specifically work to try and undermine the fact that we have this 
ability to interpret things so subjectively by getting multiple people in on it and having lots of information and relying on repeated measurements and data. And that's what science is. That's why it's so useful. And so although I, I think there is, there is a lot of use of utility and a lot of use in the idea of phenomenology, which I'll, I'll get to a little bit later, that I always want to be careful that we're not just saying, well, anything goes, truth isn't real, science doesn't matter, just think whatever you want, it's fine. Um, especially when we, I feel, and probably everyone has always said this, I, I, it's a little bit cliched at this point, but we're the, the era of fake news and we're in this realm with people who, you, you know, I just recently heard on the news, the truth isn't truth thing or something like that. The mm-hmm. facts aren't facts. Alternative facts. Alternative facts, that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing that I'm afraid one might interpret from a discussion like this. And that's not what we're saying. But we are talking about that part of our experience. And as we go about navigating things, it is subjective. We have the things that we are we have been shaped to experience through our lives, through our culture, through our community, through, at this point, the internet. And um, we also have uh, what we're biologically prepared to interact with. And so those are things that are subjective. And I'll get into that a little bit more, but I just wanted to throw that out there is, uh, as we approach this, taking that as close to a scientific sort of objective angle as we can. Absolutely. Do you want to get into a little bit of the ideology behind phenomenology? Ologyology? Yeah. <laughs> the ologies <laughs> of ologies. We'll go ahead and say that maybe you've heard of phenomen- phenomenology, maybe not. Either way, this is related to the ideas of consciousness and epistemology. Also topics I'm not going to go into right now, although I think it's worth covering in, in depth at some point. In fact, some actually consider epistemology the study of knowing about knowing, um, to be a category of phenomenology. So you have sort of this grand overarching category of the sort of subjective experience. And inside of that, you have things like uh, epistemology and you also have things like consciousness that some people have categorized it that way. Others don't necessarily agree, but that's just at least some um, something that people have tried to wrap some logic around how that hierarchy might work. So look for that. Uh, as I said, we'll probably be doing future episodes on that if you're interested in these sort of philosophical things, if we haven't put you to sleep already. Wait, what? Where are we? <laughs> what? I'm awake. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so another idea that's really intrinsically related to consciousness is qualia. So in philosophy and in certain models of psychology, qualia are defined to be individual instances of subjective conscious experience. And the term qualia is derived from um, the Latin word qualis, which means of what sort or of what kind. So in a specific instance, like what is it like to taste a specific apple, this particular apple now? Right. Yeah. The whole idea of qualia is sort of the what's it what's it like? Um, sort of thing. And that, that really is heavily inside of that talking about this in terms of how you experience it. So probably many of you have already realized that in order to talk about and discuss, and if you were to think about it in this way, study, although that's not really how people do this, this was wrapped up inside of a, a technique that has, is sort of the bread and butter of psychology, or at least has been for a long time, is this idea of introspection. Now, mostly people don't do as much introspection now, 
Actually, that's not true. They do, but they don't call it that. But introspection was originally the way that people thought this is the only way to study the mind. And it, it kind of is what it sounds like, this idea of examining one's own conscious thoughts and feelings as they happen and just sort of talking about them. And this relies exclusively on the observation that you have of your own, of one's own mental state. So you can't actually observe someone else's conscious thoughts and feelings you can observe things that you think might be related to those, like their words. They say that I'm sad, and you can interpret this as, okay, they're, they're experiencing the feeling of sadness. You don't actually know what they're experiencing, but maybe that word is an indicator. Or we see that they're crying, so we're going to say, well, I don't actually know what they're experiencing, but maybe their crying is an indicator of their feelings. Only the person who is having the feelings themselves can actually have that experience. And so that's why many early psychologists, and again, people still do this, although they don't call it this, relied on this idea of subject, subjective experience to report on those. And those were considered psychological data that, you know, it, it was just, you're the only one who's an expert. So your words are the thing that will best represent the, what you're experiencing. Some refer to this as examining one's own soul. This kind of a similar idea. And this idea is directly in contrast to that external observation of what, what could someone else see and derive important information and data from that observation that they had, right? I, mean, I don't know if it's really worth pointing out right now, but there's always the, the just to qualify this idea of introspection, because it seems kind of intuitive. We're the only person, I'm the only one who has access to my thoughts and feelings. You're the only person who has access to your thoughts and feelings. And so therefore, if I want to know what's going on in your mind so that I can study a human mind, I need to just ask you. Well, interestingly, when we talk about it, that actually changes the experience of the thoughts and feelings that we have. And it changes their function. It changes how they happen. It changes the order in which they happen. We're doing so much thinking and feeling. And there's oftentimes several layers of this. There are many things sort of stacked on top of each other. And to try and isolate one changes how the other ones show up and by trying to talk about it. So it's, it's not necessarily if someone reports on what they're thinking and feeling, they're reporting on how they've been taught to label that experience, which again, going back to that whole idea of, do you see green when I see green, you've been taught to label that thing that you see as green. I've been taught to label this thing that when I felt this way before, someone told me that I felt happy. So I'm feeling this thing now I'm going to say that I'm happy. I don't know if that's what you feel when you say that you're happy because you may have been taught slightly differently, or maybe you felt something different when someone told you that the thing that that you were feeling was happiness. It's a big rabbit hole to go down into this discussion of, of like how we rate those sorts of things. But I just, I like to bring that up because it's not so easy as just saying, tell me what's on your mind. And then relying on that as, oh yeah, that's definitely how a mind works. It's just much more complicated than that. We're doing so many things and you could call them subconscious in the sense that we, we think and process things so quickly that oftentimes we don't stop to describe them in any sort of detail. And if we do, that changes how we are interacting with that experience. So just like to throw that out there, little food for thought thing. <laughs> Delicious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and that gets really into the difficulties and criticisms that a lot of particularly behavioral psychologists have had with phenomenology, right? Yeah. One quote I really liked, and it's kind of long, but it's just, it's so well written and says it so beautifully that I just, I, I need to quote the whole thing. It's, it's several sentences, but bear with me if that's okay. Um, this is from a, a psychologist named Hank Schlinger. It was published in 2008, and he's talking about qualia. And this is related to the idea of consciousness and this idea of subjective experience. So let me just go ahead and read what he says specifically. 
He says, quote, what most consciousness scholars are concerned with is subjective experience or so-called qualia, such as, quote, the redness of red, end quote. But what does the redness of red mean? Newborns come equipped with specialized receptors that respond to the wavelength of light corresponding to red, but they don't yet respond differentially to red than to other colors, and thus don't experience the redness of red. Humans alone learn the concept of red because we alone learn one response to all things that reflect that particular wavelength, even if they differ in all other respects, for example, size, shape, texture, etc. That one response is the word red. As children, we're taught to say red by parents who reinforce that response only in the presence of red things. Physicists can explain the nature of the wavelengths corresponding to red, and neurophysiologists can explain the biochemical changes that occur when those wavelengths strike photoreceptors and are transmitted along visual pathways to the brain. But we need behavior analysts to, help to tell us how someone learns to respond to and thus be conscious of red. Discussions of qualia are muddled because the definition is vague and subjective. Qualia, like consciousness, is just a word. As psychologist Noel Smith has noted, the concept of consciousness is a construct and is quoting Noel here, um, an invention, an abstraction, a contrivance, end quote. But it's an unsatisfactory construct in that it has no specifiable reference. There are no real events that comprise it and thus no agreement about what it is and how it operates. According to Smith, it's only a tangle of words because it consists of no more than words. Thus, those searching for consciousness or qualia may as well be hunting for Lewis Carroll's snark, end quote. And I just, I think that he says so well, <laughs> I know, right? It's <laughs> so good. It's very witty. He says so well. I mean, he just really succinctly wrapped up in all of this, this, uh, this criticism about what qualia are and this idea that the subjective experience thing is somehow unique from our learning history mm -hmm. and all of that. And I think that he just makes some really great points about the fact that this subjective experience is, yes, everybody's going to have their own unique orientation to things in the world and space and time and their developmental history and blah, blah, blah. And those are things that we can account for, at least to some extent, by how we experience those as we are raised in those contexts and environments and cultures. So I, I just really like that quote. And it was probably, mm -hmm. the, probably the longest quote I've ever read. But he says it so well, I just had to use it. So Yeah, he pretty much did our job for us. That's so succinct. And exactly. Yeah, thanks, gives, gives the perspective. Thanks, thanks Schlinger. Um, you know, but, but even earlier psychologists before him, you know, like Thorndike, Watson, Skinner, they really did have difficulties with phenomenology because it is so heavily based on introspection. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And the idea of phenomenology being a scientific treatment of subjective and observable measures seems to have kind of kind of a multiple problems that, that come with that, right? Yeah, for sure. So like the subjective world is pretty complex and multi-layered and you know a scientific approach has a difficult time enough with the objective world so you know to subscribe this this is really complex um system is is pretty difficult yeah i mean subjective states are subtle and they're ambiguous as we've mentioned so far and that makes it really hard to try and report on anything to make it seem like it's really worthwhile and objective science has instruments to stabilize and replicate methodology. So for traditional phenomenology, the instrument is the mind and training of the practitioner, making the replication of the results in the training difficult, impossible, maybe is a better word there. Well, and I think you can make the argument that if you are training someone on how to deal with this, that you're then changing their subjective experience. So Absolutely. at that point, how do you know that you're even like doing research on the thing that you're interested in? It's just, it's, it's very difficult. And I understand these criticisms that, 
this is this is too far removed from like good science. We already know as scientists that we have the potential and limitations of the bias that we come to because of things like our subject, subjective experience. So to weigh in on that as the most important thing seems like it is stepping back and away from the thing that we're trying to do, which is describe the world as accurately in the universe, let's just say, as accurately as possible. And I get that, you know, it makes sense that they would have that. Yeah, absolutely. And so what do you think about when it comes to like this pure phenomenology? Well, again, first, that's kind of not a thing. Um, it's never, it's, it's more of that sort of method. And the trouble with this is not that it's reflective or introspective, although I think many have pointed out that is trouble, um, or, or even that it's focused on experience and that it's subjective or, or again, even that it relies on the first person, um, whatever that's exactly supposed to mean. The trouble also is that this idea of sort of pure phenomenology conceives of its subject matter as autonomous. It is this epistemic isolation of phenomenology more than anything else that threatens to undermine its claim to be a serious kind of intellectual pursuit. At best, it seems it is a fantasy to engage this sort of pursuit. And essentially what I'm saying in all of this is that it it makes it seem like it's possible to do this research as if this was something that could stand outside of our subjective experience. So to say that we could study subjective experience is saying that we can experience our subjective experience, not subjectively, right? That's sort <laughs> of what, that's what it's saying. Oh man. And, and we can't, we just can't isolate those things. So instead it's, I think what one would probably argue is it's better to figure out where our weaknesses are and sort of how we approach things cognitively and then try and account for those when we go about doing our measurements and our data and our science rather than let's devote all of our time and energy to the fact that we're probably wrong. <laughs> or maybe not. I, you know, I think a lot of people do uh, actually point out that science, what science does is figure out how it's wrong all the time. Yeah. Which is, you know, I, I think a totally worthwhile thing to do. Yeah. Anytime. It's, it's easy to say that it's not necessarily worthwhile considering phenomenology because the vastness that is subjective experience. But, you know, the in the history of philosophy, that is philosophy, you know? True. That's, that's what it's been attempting to do. That's what humans have been attempting to do for millennia. Is there any way by which we might approach or has anyone had any thoughts on how we might actually approach and take phenomenology and make it useful? So let's dig into... A particular article, and th there are multiple studies who have described an uh, an attempt to use the ideas inside of phenomenology. Again, this is this is a method of inquiry. It's not actually a field of study. And so, one we're going to dig into. Um, I'll just go through the abstract. And this, and essentially in this article, they were d describing phenomenology and how to think about phenomenology, the discipline or um, the activity of researching subjective experience and whether or not that could be a legitimate source of information. And this is related to the, the question of whether or not this can be investigated in sort of an empirical study of what human beings go through in their sort of daily lives. And so the authors make the case that this can be studied um, empirically and objectively, um, but only if there is sort of a revamp of what uh, phenomenology is and what it could be. 
Okay, so this article is called um, Intolerance of Uncertainty in Youth with Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and Generalized Anxiety Disorder, a transdiagnostic construct with implications for phenomenology and treatment. The authors on this one were Gillett, Bielek, Hannah, and Fitzgerald. And this was actually published this year, 2018. So finding those, those nice recent things, right? Very cool. So... What they start off with kind of saying is that uh, obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD and generalized anxiety disorder or GAD, they display significant overlapping phenomenology. And due to the fact that they have that shared phenomenology and a high rate of comorbidity between the two disorders, there is a possibility that there is sort of a common underlying process to both of those diagnoses. And so there has been some research recently that is focused on uh, intolerance of uncertainty um, as kind of an underlying process. Right. And so this idea of intolerance of uncertainty is defined as, as they talk about in the paper, as one's dispositional incapacity to endure the aversive response triggered by the perceived absence of salient key or sufficient information. And that was all direct quote. So intolerance of uncertainty, or IU, it could be particularly relevant for understanding um, OCD and, and generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah, more generally, intolerance of uncertainty can be understood to represent the fear of not knowing, the fear of uncertainty, being afraid of, of just lacking important information of some kind, and that intolerance of uncertainty characterizes both obsessions and worries, and that's why that they're described that this is something that is an underlying process for both of those diagnoses. So what they really wanted to do is they wanted to dive in and um, review the phenomenological overlap between OCD and GAD and, and really determine how the symptoms of the two relate to this intolerance of uncertainty and, you know, kind of find out how the intolerance of uncertainty could be measured. And so their review focused on children and adolescents and the authors reviewed psychotherapeutic treatments to, uh, to do this article. So within the article, the authors explore a wide variety of things. But first of all, they, they start with the similarities and the differences between kind of the core features of these two disorders. Um, these being mainly obsessions or compulsions and also worry. And because the uh, the DSM, in this case, they're looking at the four, I guess, I'm not entirely sure why, but the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is the main source by which in the United States um, psychological diagnoses are made, um, because the, that the DSM presents those two as separate entities, two separate diagnoses, but with a high degree of phenomenological overlap, differentiating the two can be complicated. Yeah, and similarities are present between the terms used in the definitions of both generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. Right, and from a behavioral side, the symptoms of worry and compulsion appear to be maintained through um, this idea of negative reinforcement. And what that means specifically in this case is um, the, the symptoms of worry and compulsion, uh, those are strengthened when people are successfully able to avoid the real fear or the perceived fear of either the unknowing or the worry sort of thing. Um, and they avoid the negative emotional experience and, and the negative outcomes associated with those things. Yeah, so continuing down, the authors really, um, they wanted to explore real-life presentations of OCD and GAD and also how they could potentially be differentiated. Yeah, the relationship of obsessions and worry, um, specifically how they relate to this idea of the intolerance of uncertainty. So for OCD, they identified that intolerance to uncertainty is related to compulsions and ritualistic behaviors. And Miranda, for generalized anxiety disorder, worrying may um, serve to minimize thoughts or feelings of that uncertainty, uh, which uh, can decrease that level of arousal and sort of being worked up about things. 
Yeah, and so then finally, one of their uh, their their big goal was to find a strategy for measuring this intolerance of uncertainty. Right, as a thing that is the underlying component. That's an, it would be useful to have that as a the strategy. Absolutely, and so one measure uh, is the intolerance of uncertainty scale, known as the IUS. Right. Uh, perfect. <laughs> and it is an, uh, an adult self-report tool, and it consists of 27 items. And these items assess uh, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral reactions to uncertain situations. So there are some other measures. These include the IUS-12, IUSC, which is developed for individuals 7 to 17. Um, and these are, in addition, these are just other scales inventories yeah and of course people have done neuroimaging studies to research the um the underlying neurological mechanisms and with respect to the um, intolerance of certainty generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and there are psychotherapeutic treatments for ocd and gad and they were discussed based on similarities and limitations now, traditionally, cognitive behavioral therapy is considered sort of the gold standard for treatments of pediatric obsessive compulsive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. But many of those still suffer from significant symptoms, even with that treatment. And cognitive behavioral therapy may be able to provide greater treatment for intolerance to uncertainty, considering that intolerance to uncertainty addresses the underlying processes that are associated with both uh, generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. Sure. And the authors point out that cognitive behavioral therapy tends to be sort of symptom focused rather than addressing that underlying process, in this case, the intolerance to uncertainty. And that actually may lead to the development of symptoms or increased severity of the symptoms because it's not addressing that underlying cause. So evidence suggests that a cognitive behavioral therapy based approach to intolerance to uncertainty may be an alternative to traditional uh, CBT for generalized anxiety disorder. And similar to the typical CBT components, the CBT, which has a focus on that intolerance to uncertainty, those protocols, they place an extra emphasis on uncertainty recognition and also like the reevaluation of positive beliefs about worry. And also, uh, in addition to that, the exposure to uncertainty itself. And cognitive behavioral therapy, the IU, the um, intolerance to uncertainty, that's been researched in several case studies uh, and some clinical trials with adults with generalized anxiety disorder. Um, for those who are interested, you can look at work by um, Dugas or Dugas maybe um, in Quebec. And so participants from the case studies and randomized control studies have demonstrated a decrease in uh, their experience of intolerance to uncertainty uh, that they experience of those change after treatment. So for children with generalized anxiety disorder, um, a program called the, quote, no worries program, end quote, has been used. Um, but more research is really needed uh, to look at these younger populations when it comes to utilizing CBT with a, an emphasis on intolerance to uncertainty. All right. So I had to unpack this no worries program because I actually hadn't heard of this before uh, talking about this. This, this was kind of new to me and I was really interested in it. And so I found a, a relatively thorough description of what this consists of. And so this is a group based program and it consists of 10 90 minute sessions. Okay. So there's 10 sessions that are 90 minutes long. And then after those 10 sessions, there is a booster session that's a, a month later and another booster session that happens three months later. Yeah, and it's really designed to target that intolerance to uncertainty, as well as negative beliefs about worry, negative problem orientation, and also negative avoidance. And every single one of those things actually has their own initialism. It's like, 
intolerance of uncertainty is IU, negative beliefs about worry is NBW, negative problem orientation is, there's so many. I'm just like, why? You're just going to speak all in initialisms and abbreviations. <laughs> that's it. All right. So this anyway. from people that use a lot of initials and abbreviations. I know. We're so guilty about that. I know, but this is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And uh, another component of the No Worries program includes a, a component of psychoeducation about child anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder, as well as uh, relaxation relaxation training, and some sort of worry management strategies. And a part that I think is pretty cool is that it is also designed to train caregivers to implement these strategies with their kids. And it includes this this thing, this like na- na- uh, narrative therapy. And this is really interesting the way this is set up. This is actually very in line with some other therapies that, that we know work because there's good evidence. And so I thought this was cool that this was sort of arrived at a similar implementation from a totally different perspective. And in this narrative therapy, they try and frame for kids this idea to thinking again as the generalized anxiety disorder or their um, uh, childhood anxiety to conceptualize the experience of anxiety as a tangible thing called the worry beast. And the strategy is to understand like the demands of the worry beast and how this worry beast impacts their life. And more importantly, um, it looks at how to tame the worry beast. Right. It's kind of interesting. Um, what I love about this is they specifically point out the point of the No Worries program is not to get rid of the worry beast. It's not to eliminate the anxiety in the worry, but instead it's to tame it and make it more manageable. So it's not to say you're never going to worry again. Congratulations, because worrying can actually be a useful experience to have as, as a reaction to certain things that happen in life. Instead, it's How do we deal with this when that worry is overwhelming about things it doesn't need to be overwhelming about? How do we turn down the volume a little bit and make this thing so it's it's much more manageable and it's not so, I guess, crippling, you know, and how it it sort of takes over someone. So that I thought that was a, a cool sort of component that they brought that in. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So given the evidence of cognitive behavioral therapy with a focus on intolerance to uncertainty, it really is demonstrating some desired results, you know, improvement of symptoms with adolescents and adults with generalized anxiety disorder. And there, you know, there is a convincing argument that CBT should be considered for individuals with OCD with CBT that has specific content that targets intolerance to uncertainty. Okay, so... Overall, what they talk about in this study is that the initial research provides a sort of promising, there's some promising results for targeting intolerance to uncertainty uh, to augment treatment for patients who have obsessive compulsive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. And as far as augmenting CBT with, you know, this this component, it's still in its infancy and more research with children and adolescents is certainly needed. Now, since obsessive compulsive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder can develop early in life. Further studies should really seek to include a more diverse population so that it's more representative sample of, um, of people, you know, (laughs) exactly. So like is race, education, socioeconomic status, um, are these other factors associated with worry? You know, we need to, we need to kind of know these things. And of course, the question that we always need to ask is this idea of intolerance to uncertainty. Is that present across other racial groups and other cultures? And and that would inform how we go about making diagnoses and treatment recommendations. Let's go ahead and bring this home. I think we've described fairly thoroughly what phenomenology is, I hope. I mean, there's this is 
as we mentioned, a long, long line of developing philosophy, and there's not actually a set of principles or arguments about phenomenology. It is simply a way of thinking about and describing what our subjective experience is. Okay, and so here's here's sort of my thoughts on this idea of phenomenology. What I like about this orientation is that it entails a certain level of humility in science with respect to what we really know. I like the fact that phenomenology implies that everything we experience is simply a snapshot of an event at a particular place and time from a particular vantage point interpreted by the limited abilities and skills of the person who's interacting with and observing that event. And that's accurate. Like that's a perfectly, it's a good conservative way of understanding that when we try and do science and observation, we do so from a limited vantage point. We can't be all knowing. We have that one instance. And you know, and oftentimes, as I said, repeated measures is ideal. So we often have multiple instances, but they're still limited by our measurement tools, by our timing, by how long we observe for, by how we define we define our constructs, all of those things are going to impact how we get those results. Now, ironically, what I don't like about this approach of phenomenology is that it can entail exactly the opposite of this hubris and arrogance that whatever we experience in our minds and our bodies, that this is somehow separate from reality and therefore equally legitimate as doing good descriptive and and um, and scientific research. And one can easily extrapolate from phenomenology to the idea that when we measure and collect data, it is just as accurate as making things up or totally guessing. Right. And, um, and so that's just, those are sort of my closing thoughts on how we use and talk about and think about phenomenology. I think on the one hand, it offers us the sort of, as I said, the humble position of respecting the fact that we are limited beings. And on the other hand, I'm always concerned that that opens the way for people to say, well, whatever I think is legitimate and true because I, I'm thinking it and that's my subjective take. And so that's that's sort of the, the balance I see inside of this. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite, favorite quotes that I've probably even used on the show. And I don't care. I'm going to say it again because it's so good. And it's from Stephen Jay Gould when he in his book, The Mismeasure of Man. And he says, quote, the spirit of Plato dies hard. We have been unable to escape the philosophical tradition that what we can see and measure in the world is merely the superficial and imperfect representation of an underlying reality, end quote. Just such a nice sentiment to express the fact that we're so tempted to say that what we're measuring is a indicator of reality, but not actual reality. And therefore, anything that we can make up that that indicator might represent is just as legitimate as saying that when we do good empirical research, that that's research. And I, I just I love that he points out so eloquently our, our fallibility and the assumptions that we have when we go about trying to measure the world and those things. So I, I just think he said it really well. Do you have anything to close out with? No, I think that succinctly sums up everything. And you're right; it is it is that double-edged sword. It, it, there, there's some really um, you know nice perspectives that come from phenomenology, and then we witness it firsthand within science and also within the wider culture. Just this idea that anything that we think it's true because it's it's what we think and it's what we perceive, and therefore it's valid, and and that's that's problematic. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 
it's, it's problematic, it's but uh, the way you said it was wonderful. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we go, uh, we do have a, a quick piece of, of listener mail, but I also want to say uh, specifically thank you to uh, an enormous amount of research and fact-checking help that goes specifically to Brittany Bowerly and uh, Brittany Marie DeSanti, who helped prepare for both the Hierarchy of Needs episode as well as this episode on phenomenology. Uh, so thank them for the, uh, thank you both for your work. Two brilliant behavioral, uh, behavioral scientists and fantastic women, and we are very, very happy that they are helping us out. Yes, thank you. Okay, so uh, with that, let's go ahead and go on to our listener mail. So this message actually comes from Simon uh, Desjardins. Desjardins? Desjardins. Desjardins. And he's from France. And he was writing in about our intelligence episodes, specifically in part three. And uh, and Simon actually is a a friend of the show. We know him uh, personally uh, from our our group of our circle of people but um he wrote and i actually didn't recognize his name right away i was like thanks for writing in <laughs> i know it was really embarrassing so i'm so oh, sorry no. simon about that um I, I wasn't paying attention to your name i was just paying attention to the message so anyway simon says um it's quote unquote funny um i guess it's interesting to note that in fact you mentioned it, that benet being a french psychologist and the purpose of the iq test was initially to give appropriate placement to french students and that even in 2018 we uh, we still don't have a placement and tiered system for students um that need special education in france it's a shame don't you think yes simon i do think that that's a shame i agree completely and that is that many countries i think have that issue but it is ironic that that originated in france and that it's um its utility, its purpose, or its intention has not even been applied or realized yet in the way that I think uh, Benet would have liked to have seen. So, absolutely. Um, say thank you very much for writing Thanks, in. Simon. Yeah, I appreciate the thoughts. I always like to hear, uh, you know, people who uh, have addition, you know, comments on those things from the perspective in in other parts of the world and for just from a sort of a closer relationship to that topic. So, uh, uh, thank you very much for that. So, cool. Got anything else? No, this was a this was a good one. This was a lot to wrap our heads around, and I, I hope everyone enjoyed going on that journey with us. Yeah. So uh, if you survived, congratulations. You now know everything there is to know about phenomenology, or at least a small fraction of a percent of it. And so um, if you're interested, there's plenty of resources. We, we're going to link many of those in the notes, including that long, long quote I did from Schlinger. Um, and then many of the, uh, the article that was used for this, as well as a few other sources. So there's, there's lots of stuff to go check out there if you're interested in more philosophy stuff. And of course, we'll have some more episodes trying to keep it as uh, light and engaging as possible. I know some of this stuff can be kind of heavy. So thanks for sticking with us. Absolutely. All right. Well, then that is all we've got. Uh, this is Abraham. This is Miranda. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. 
video and production assistance from Tyler Brasier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Thank you.